0: Hello, listener. Phil Rickaby here. I just wanted to take a second and tell you about a project that I've been working on for a little while. And originally, this was going to be something that I had intended to perform for the holiday season. But due to the fact that uh, we're in a pandemic and all the theaters are closed, that's not an option. And so I decided to create an audio drama instead. And so what I'm going to be doing is releasing a six-part audio drama of this Holiday themed story, and that's called Saint Nick and the Big f- Up. I'm going to take a second here right before we get into the regular show and play the trailer for you, and you'll be able to follow that. You can find it on all of your podcast platforms, just like you do this one. Hi, I'm Nick, world champion. F- up full-time asshole part-time mall Santa which is ironic because I don't even like Christmas Christmas and I have not been on speaking terms for a long time I'm not even supposed to be working today Christmas Eve the busiest day of the year at the mall the worst day to be Santa and today is a bad day but it's about to get worse so much worse Saint Nick and the big up is a holiday audio drama in six parts written and performed by me phil rickaby find it at saint nick and the big f up.com, as well as everywhere you get podcasts starting november 17th welcome to episode 262 of Stageworthy. i'm your host phil rickaby Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 262 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is philrickaby.com. My guest this week is theater maker, lawyer, and poet Sukrit Sangha. Sukrit directs Theater of the Beat's Yellow Bellies. Look for it at theaterofthebeat.ca. I was looking at this bio on the Theater of the Beat website <laughs> which lists you as a theater maker, lawyer, poet and barfly.
1: That's right.
0: So, um I haven't spoken to many director lawyers or theater maker lawyers, so um I want to hear your theater origin story and and uh how you're balancing both things. So, why don't we start with your your theater origin story? What what first drew you to theater?
1: Uh, it's a good question. Kind of makes me sound like a comic book character with this framing of origin story, which I mm-hmm. appreciate. Uh, I'm sure that's intentional. Um, what drew me to theater? Frankly, I think just being involved in productions at school uh, was what did it from the very beginning. I'm trying to think of when the first one would have been. I have some sort of vague memory of being um. Uh, like a narrator for some sort of elementary school production, which I remember enjoying, and then going on to do whatever shows I could do in middle school and then taking drama class throughout high school every year and then ending up doing a drama and English degree for my undergrad. So the seed of it is really whatever that first production would have been in elementary school and then just carrying on with that after enjoying it for whatever opportunities I could get
0: there is something about that narrator position and, and you know most of those those elementary school productions have somebody who's functioning as the narrator and i guess that's you know that's the the person that, that gets to talk and actually be the center of attention and so if that's what draw what's, what's actually drawing you in of course that's going to be a bit of an addictive drug to a young uh, budding theater artist
1: yeah it's funny i feel like i don't i don't think of the narrator role as the center of attention but i think you're right in some texts. It can Mm -hmm. be, I, I, my recall of this show, if I can even call it that is so slim that I don't remember if it was central or not. I have the vague feeling that it wasn't, but maybe, (laughs) maybe I'm misremembering. I don't know.
0: Or maybe it felt like that to you at the time being the one that because in some shows, I remember a couple of shows when I was in elementary school where the narrator was the only one that really spoke. Right. Um, Yeah. And So, of course, in that particular position, you would feel pretty darn special.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I remember I enjoyed what I I enjoyed being on stage and I enjoyed the element of performance that I got a taste (laughs) of and have sort of been in various ways chasing the dragon ever since. Yeah. yeah.
0: Now, so you went to you, you did like a a double major in theater and, and English. So what was the path that took you to. Uh, the law? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I I wanted to be a lawyer since about middle school. So mm-hmm. these were parallel interests that were competing in some ways for a while. And I ended up doing this drama and English double major because I got some good advice early on uh, in my education, I I think probably in high school, from someone who told me, to just major in whatever I wanted to, and whatever I enjoyed in undergrad, since in the Canadian system, uh, you can apply to law school with any undergrad. And so Mm. of course I would enjoy myself more and probably perform better if I were majoring in something that I liked and it might not have anything to do with law. And so that's what I did. And I did have this big debate between, uh, I was also debating majoring in poli-sci and French and poli-sci is a pretty somewhat common Uh, undergrad major for people who went to law school, but the other three are not that common at all. And uh, I ended up pursuing the two that I liked the best after some debate. Um, And then, yeah, went on to law school as I had kind of always planned. Although I did have a a bit of a debate during undergrad towards the end about whether or not I was going to do this after all, or if I was going to do something else, try and Hmm. make more of a go in theater or try and become, an academic, you know, do a master's or a PhD, and I definitely had theater professors who were telling me strongly not to go to law school. And sometimes <laughs> I wish I had listened to them, but I didn't listen to them. So here we are now.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Of course they would tell you not to go to law school. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they were not big fans of lawyers, and I appreciate that they were encouraging me to continue on with my theatre work, but I do feel Mm. at the same time that they were kind of irresponsible in not talking to me about how... The academic job market is awful, and was already awful <laughs> when I was in an undergrad. And they gave me no indication of that, so I found that out later myself. Um, but there, they were having, I guess, some rose-colored glasses about what the academic outlook would be for me if I tried to be a theater practitioner, like they were. So,
0: were yeah. they suggesting that you that instead of pursuing theater, that you go into academics? Was that their their goal?
1: Yeah, they were saying that I should do be become a theater academic like themselves and so then do work like in terms of production on the side or through the program that I would I guess in their vision end up teaching in but also be an academic because they you know they had I guess they enjoyed what they were doing and to be honest I think they have. Pretty cushy roles in some ways. Theater academics who can do more production, like professional production work, on the mm. side where they want to, and also do the student productions, but also be academics and teach. I think uh, I see what they meant. If it, if if job prospects in that area were actually good, um, I would still consider it. But mm. I think those jobs are very hard to come by at this point. So
0: yes, the jobs. I I think you're right. The jobs that they had are are very difficult to come by. They uh um they were probably one of the last groups of, of full-time theater practitioners as, as theater academics is so many have gone become part-time roles in a lot of schools.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's small faculties. And like you're saying, mm-hmm. yeah, lots of sessional instruction. I mean, all those problems that are present in every faculty and department throughout mm-hmm. our universities now and colleges and sorts of all levels of education, really it's a huge problem. Um, yeah. And as you're saying, the, Theater departments are not immune to those, unfortunately, labor, labor practices.
0: So, so curious about how you you balance your theater making with with uh, the lawyering, if that's the correct term. Um, <laughs> what how do you find a balance between the two? Because in the 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 imagined mind, the imagined role of the lawyer that we see in film and television, it's like all hours of the day and 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 long hours in libraries and things like that so what is it what's wrong about that and also like how do you find the balance between the the legal and the theatrical
1: sure so it's looked different at different stages in my career and i wouldn't say that your your uh conception of of lawyering which is indeed the, the right word uh is, is that off base depending on what type of work you're doing? So for me, uh, I practiced as a criminal defense lawyer uh, for the first few years of my career after I articled. And articling, for anyone who's not familiar, perhaps including yourself, is a period of internship that we have to do after graduating from law school for 10 months, and working in sort of an apprentice capacity, you could say, generally being paid. In my view, those positions should all be paid. Unfortunately, they're not always paid at this point, but many are. Mine was, fortunately for me. Uh, So I articled in criminal defense under the supervision of a criminal defense lawyer, and then I practiced at that firm. I was hired back, so I was there for a couple of years after that. And when I was doing theater work then, uh, what it looked like, well, it looked quite minimal because I was working a lot. So criminal defense lawyers are, you know, on call 24-7. People get arrested all the time. So if that's your work, then you have to be ready on your phone in case you get an arrest call and need to assist a client and, you know, ready to show up in court last minute. So there wasn't a lot of time and there's weekend work too. Um, so I was working a lot and there wasn't a lot of time to do theater. But when I was able to do it, uh, what it looked like was, you know, th- Rehearsals on evenings and weekends, as much as I could manage to fit them in, and then using vacation time to tour a show. So I Mm. uh, took a vacation to tour play um, with Theater of the Beat uh, in 2014, I think it was. And I did that again two years later uh, when I was practicing in a different capacity at a legal clinic. And legal clinics can have more balance depending on what clinic you're at and you know how heavy your caseload is at that time and Mm. sort of the nature of the work fluctuates if you're doing any sort of litigation work which is what I was doing uh, in both of those roles that I've mentioned now so at least my schedule was more reasonable so it was easier to get some theater in I had more Mm. evening hours and weekend hours but still long hours a good amount of time uh, and then I ended up taking vacation again to tour a show again And now I'm not practicing, so Mm. my hours are more reasonable. I'm Mm. in an educating role. I teach uh, legal workshops and do other programming with high school students in TDSB public high schools in ESL classes, the more advanced sort of upper level ESL classes where students have more fluency. And Mm. um, because I'm not practicing anymore, my schedule is more reasonable much more of a nine to five situation. So I have more time on the evenings and weekends and I haven't, I might not, I I think I haven't taken vacation in this role, which I've been at for just over a year to do any theater work at this point yet, but who knows what's to come.
0: I am very familiar of taking a vacation to do a theater tour. I've done that a few times, so (laughs) I know exactly what that is like. Um, Now You've been you've had a, a a relatively long relationship with Theater of the Beat.
1: I have, uh, yeah, was, it started in 2014 with that first tour.
0: What was that show?
1: That show is a show called Forgiven Forgotten, which is written mm. by Johnny Weidman, who's the founding and former artistic director um, of Theater of the Beat, who's still involved with the company. And it was a show that really tied in with my interests because it's about restorative justice, and so mm. it's a show that takes place um, the text. Takes place within the context of a church community where there's a character who moves into town and starts going to this church, and uh, her husband is sort of conspicuously absent, and then it becomes clear that he's incarcerated and he's about to be released and then the community grapples with the question of how they will or will not embrace this partner of this person that they've come to welcome in their community Mm -hmm. as well as her child and so we would use that show as a springboard to have conversations about restorative justice and what that can look like and we toured that show Uh, both the tours I referred to were of that show so one was the east coast and one was to bc and Hmm. we would tour it to different venues like we went into um federal penitentiaries and youth detention centers as well as churches and schools um sort of various venues to run the show and do an associated workshop and conversations about restorative justice
0: Hmm. now um of course you know you you've, you've recently directed with theater of the beat again yeah um and but that was post-COVID. So before we get into that, what were you doing at the time when everything shut down?
1: Uh, What was I doing? Well, I can tell you that Friday the 13th, March 13th, I was teaching in one of the high schools that I teach in. I was running mock trials and then I went to a bar after work uh, where my partner happens to be a brewer. And we were talking about, oh, how bad is this going to get? The school board today just extended March break from one mm. week to two weeks. Hmm. What's uh, what's what's going on here? I wonder, yeah, what's going to happen with, with the brewery and with everything else and having our nice little Friday night. And then the next day, we got a call that somebody we had been at the bar with in the tap room uh, had some respiratory symptoms and oh. was. Going to try and get tested for COVID. And so we needed to impose our own two week uh, isolation just in case. Mm -hmm. And at that point, tests were hard to come by. So we just had to do that. A very good friend of mine from law school got us groceries so we could manage for those two weeks. And I stopped going into the office before my colleagues did because of this. And then, yeah, within that two week period, everything really properly shut down and everyone stopped going to the office. And what we had started a few days early obviously became the new normal.
0: Yeah. and 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 quarantining together was fine you didn't uh you didn't uh uh find things uh too too stressful
1: um i mean yeah it was fine we're still <laughs> we're still doing it right so i mean we're well, not you go. That's, but... that's
0: that's the sign right there <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's definitely not an ideal situation as you can tell from the the brief list of interests in my bio i'm not really uh <laughs> someone who likes to stay home that much. So it's taken Mm. some getting used to, but I'm very grateful for my partner who's definitely really helped me get through it. And I, um, would be far worse off if I was (laughs) living alone for this. So
0: what, what kind of things have, have you been doing to get through it to, since you can't really do the things that you normally do?
1: Yeah. Well, I (laughs) like, Many other people have started a more regular yoga practice. That's helping me. Um, I have done yoga before, but sort of on and off and never every day. And I'm on sort of like a short daily morning practice routine, which I've noticed has really helped with Mm. my mental health. So that's been great to discover and to do. We also started hiking. We have the benefits of having a car, even though we live in Toronto. And so Mm. we drive out to... I'll often sort of Vaughan, Brampton, Mississauga, Scarborough and go for hikes on Toronto Regional Conservation Authority trails, mm. which is not something we did before and feel safe. There's not usually that many people there. And mm-hmm. it's a really nice way to get into nature, get some fresh air and some exercise. And um, we started doing that pretty early on when spring was beginning and have continued doing that. And we'll do that as far into the winter as I can stand it. Um, Maybe even try to do it in the winter, trying to build up my gear um, collection and yeah, maybe even try some winter hiking or other winter sports. And I haven't done much of the online virtual theater stuff. I participated in sort of a reading or two. I've done readings with my friends just casually, like in backyards and even Mm -hmm. on Zoom at the beginning with some people from my book club. Um, But other than that, I haven't done. Yeah, much of the virtual theater stuff, but I am definitely watching a lot of movies and TV.
0: (laughs) As are we all. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Now, one of the challenges to virtual theater is Zoom fatigue. Mm -hmm. Um, That because our audience, our potential audience is already spending generally a lot of time in Zoom, um, it's difficult for them to come into what amounts to a zoom meeting and make the mental leap that this is now entertainment. Um, what kind of considerations did you make when you were putting together a digital production of unmute with theater of the beat?
1: Uh, so when we were doing yellow bellies, the, the format is an audio drama. So it's, it's, a bit, I think, more accessible because you have to listen to it, but you don't have to watch it. So I think that helps with the Zoom fatigue issue. Um, You know, people can sort of take it in like they would a podcast. And I feel like that is more appealing to a lot of people versus sort of watching something on Zoom because of what you mentioned, being on Zoom all the time for work or whatever else. So it came to me as a project that was offered to me to direct with the concept being, that it would be an audio drama. And mm-hmm. I was much more willing to get on board because of that than I would have been if it were like a virtual show on zoom, because mm-hmm. yeah, I think that the, there's more of a barrier to entry with something on zoom because of people being so sick of it. And I relate to that because I do a lot of work on zoom too. And that's part of why I haven't taken part in a lot of virtual theater stuff. Um, yeah. So, so I think being an audio drama helped. And then we did rehearse on Zoom. So maybe there was a bit of that for us Mm. when we were in the rehearsal process in terms of being sick of Zoom. But it was interesting. I noticed that um, there was still an element of a typical rehearsal room and a typical theater space that we were able to bring to those Zoom recording Mm. calls and rehearsals that made them a bit more normal and a bit more fun and warm yeah. and lighthearted than other Zoom content that I've taken part in. So that was nice. And part of that was because most of us knew each other. There were, like some of us that didn't know each other, hadn't met before, but mm-hmm. everyone knew at least one other person, if not more, involved um, in this production. And so that helped with that. But also just, I don't know, I guess just the that whole energy that you get from when you're working on a play uh, some of that was still present and sort of came alive more as we went on through our process, which was which was great.
0: Now you said you rehearsed on Zoom. Um, were the recordings of the audio done separately, or or how did how did that how did that work?
1: Uh, so we did everything on Zoom. So we were having some. I guess I, yeah. I, I I was thinking of some earlier stuff as like a rehearsal in terms of doing our first read through of the script and things like that but we started recording pretty early on um but we were always on zoom as well as the actors recording hmm. separately externally to zoom so then we oh, would course, have, yes yeah so we would have a zoom recording and uh, which was mainly used in terms of some stills and stuff for publicity and then we had the actual audio recording separately that we used for the show itself mm-hmm. um but yeah we did we didn't do that much rehearsing before we started going into recording and yeah, getting some takes put down.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the frustrations in, in trying to do stuff on through something like zoom is the fact that it never feels like it's in real time because there is a lag and there's nothing you can really do about it because zoom has a lag. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are further lags because of uh, internet connections and things like that. Um, Was there, like, did, in the final product, uh, how much editing had to be done with the audio to make it presentable?
1: That is a great question, and it's really a question <laughs> for our sound editor, Michael Houston, sure. and they are a wizard. Uh, so <laughs> I really, all I can say is I've never worked with a sound editor before that I can recall, because all my previous theater work has been, you know, in the room in a more typical way. Uh, so this was my first tech-heavy venture, and Mm -hmm. holy shit, can they do a lot of impressive stuff. I really (laughs) didn't know how talented they were, and they were brought on by um, one of the actors uh, who's also the artistic producer of Theatre of the Beat, Cedric Martin, knows Michael from, I don't know, maybe growing up, and uh, yeah, I was just consistently amazed and impressed by how much better they were able to make things sound, and all the... Fully and all everything that they were doing to make mm. our sound effects, like they really upped the ante in terms of the final product. Um, yeah, it's it is it is quite different and it sounds quite better than it would have sounded as a raw output. But mm. it did, you know, it sounded compelling enough. Some actors putting in some good work and all that, but it was not what it is now with all the editing and mixing that has taken place. That's for sure. No.
0: And, and, and Foley is so important to, to audio to because you do need to set the scene. You could do it just with um, the voices, but uh, the sound effects and, and Foley, they add more to the scene. They bring it alive and sort of help you to set the scene because I have heard it said that, that audio is a visual medium. Hmm. And It goes in your ears to your brain and your brain sees it Um, so that you can do that even more effectively with, with, with all the the folding and things like that. So I definitely see how that, that would have been uh, necessary. Did you imagine that that would be something that would be part of it? Or were you thinking that it'll just be the actor's voices and, and, and that will be what it is.
1: I knew that that would be part of it. So I did have it in my imagination from, early on in the project, but I think what I failed to imagine was the depth of what that work would add. Um, It's just, yeah, as someone who doesn't work in radio or sort of audio production normally, it was really compelling, and I learned a lot about how much can be done in that way to really set the stage and, like you say, create a picture in the audience's mind from what they're hearing, and I, I know the importance of of sound of course from, from normal theater work but I was feeling a lack in the beginning of well how is this really going to play out when we you know my, my favorite thing about a, a play is to be in the room with the other people <laughs> we don't get to be in the damn room like what is this gonna be and mm. uh, I don't listen to to much in the way of audio drama or audio other than music. I listened to very few podcasts. Mm-hmm. I've listened to now the, that play me podcast on CBC because mm-hmm. one of my theater collaborators told me about it during COVID and only during COVID have I ever started to listen to that um, and get more of a sense of how this stuff works. I guess it was a bit of research for this project in some ways. And I, yeah, I just really didn't have a good grasp of, of how much can be accomplished and how, how meaningful those sound editions really are, yeah.
0: Not having worked uh, as an with audio in this way before, was that as a director was that daunting to you? Was that something that you were excited about, afraid of working with? Like, how did you feel heading into a project that was entirely audio based?
1: Yeah, I guess I'm making myself sound a bit incompetent. Like, why would they no. pick her if she doesn't? No,
0: know not at all. Is. Because um, because a, a good director. Can still direct, even if they're not familiar with that particular medium. it's about working with the actors, but you know yeah
1: yeah it's and still that- it
0: still can be a very a very daunting thing to work in a new medium
1: yes, it was um it was it was a mixture, you know, I was excited about it, it was a bit daunting at the same time. I was grateful to have theater work to do it all during the pandemic, especially so early on. This isn't something mm. I anticipated being able to do. So it was a gift really. And I felt less daunted and more comfortable and ready for the adventure because of the fact that I had worked closely with two of the folks on the project, uh, Johnny Wideman, who I mentioned earlier, and then Kim Walker who is one of the actors who's also very involved with Theater of the Beat and I'd worked with on that more recent tour um, to BC and so they're friends and so being in the room with friends is always nice and knowing that they you know had faith in my skills and then the other people I didn't know were I also ended up being really lovely to work with and it just ended up being really interesting and like you say the skills that I have for directing in standard theater were very applicable it was just mm-hmm. you know working with actors uh, in the ways that I have before but through a screen this time, and and not working with the body, but working mm. with the voice in an added way, um, with more focus, I guess you could say, and and working with an editor. So there was a lot of yeah post production sort of back and forth with Michael, who's editing. Uh, that was a new part of the process, but sort of just took the place of other elements of design that you would work with designers on um, in a in a stage production. So it all kind of fit in nicely. Um, and I was a bit daunted at first, but you know it's not as daunting as like going and arguing case before the court of appeal.
0: <laughs> <So> <laughs> I still have
1: a different. Uh, for me, it's not. For other people, it would be more daunting. But my. um, Ladder of intimidation maybe uh, plays a bit differently, and things like this are just sort of warmer than daunting legal atmospheres. So that helps.
0: Absolutely, I definitely see how they might feel very different. Yeah. Um, the where was I? I had a thought and I lost it. This is one of the joys of of of, of podcasting an interview where I can lose my train of thought and um. Theater of the Beat, um, I met them originally um, during their production of Gadfly as they were on tour with that um, at the Montreal Fringe. And we ran into them later after they'd done a very meandering tour across Canada, then again at the Edmonton Fringe. So um, I've been following them for quite some time.
1: Um,
0: And you when you. How did you first approach them or did they approach you to start working with them?
1: Yeah, they approached me. It was pretty fortuitous, actually, and connects with that story you just shared. Uh, I went to undergrad at the University of Waterloo and did the drama program there, which is actually what Johnny did as well. So we knew each other uh, vaguely, but not well from undergrad. Uh, In fact, I met him when I was on the wardrobe team for my tech class when he was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Mm. I distinctly remember meeting him when he was in the dressing room for his fitting and wearing Mm. just his boxers so Mm
0: -hmm, well, it's the Rocky Horror Show
1: exactly yeah very appropriate all above board but a funny way to meet someone who would become one of my very closest friends um years down the road Mm -hmm. and I ran into them when they were touring This prison or he came through the floor at the Winnipeg Fringe in the summer of 2013 because I was on a trip to Vancouver and back on Via Rail to celebrate Mm. having finished law school. And so I made a stop in Winnipeg and the Winnipeg Fringe happened to be on, which was just fortuitous. I hadn't planned it that way. And I was staying in some hostel and some old Victorian house and had made friends with another woman who was in the yeah the women's room there and we were in line for a different Mm. show at the Winnipeg Fringe and then Johnny was pamphleting the line and (laughs) so we just ran ran into each other in that fringe line and he said oh we have this show on oh my god what are you doing here and then we went to the show and uh I guess some point after that i well we would have chatted about different things um after the show I remember that and I think I just indicated an interest in their work and he knew I just finished law school and then when they were recasting the role that I did in Forgiven Forgotten he invited me to audition and so hmm. then I auditioned and was cast and went on that tour with them
0: nice yeah um with the uh, uh I also noticed a, dr- a dramaturgy uh uh uh, credit for 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 um on um on their website so is dramaturgy something you've done before is it is it or is that a new thing what and what did what did that entail for you
1: okay so that's uh, already on their website i didn't even realize that that is a, (laughs) a work that is currently in progress so it is in its very sort of beginning stages and i haven't begun my role yet Um, but I will soon enough. And I have done dramaturgy in the past, um, in my theater degree, I took a dramaturgy class and did dramaturgy Mm -hmm. work on a few different productions. Uh, but I haven't done it for a while, but you know, if Mm -hmm. you know your theater history, you know, the role of the dramaturg and the role of the director are very intimately tied up. And the division Mm -hmm. of those roles was a, was a sort of a fractious time and there's overlap. So, I think mm-hmm. that can be natural for some of us who are directors to do dramaturgy at well uh sorry as well, and mm-hmm. um perhaps also well, hopefully in my case, and that yeah there can be there can be a natural overlap or segue there, so I haven't done it for a little while, but that project is about um Unfortunately, it's about the, well, I, maybe it's not unfortunate that's about this, but it is about the unfortunate rise in domestic violence in many households during the pandemic. Mm, and mm-hmm. that's what we're going to explore there. And my role as a dramaturg comes about partially because I have professional practice history working as a lawyer in situations of domestic violence um,
0: mm-hmm. in a
1: few different ways, uh, as a defense lawyer on one side of those cases. And then later in my clinic work on the other side of those cases, working with a lot of women who were in situations of domestic violence that had impacted them in different areas of law. And, um, yeah. And, and in some other ways as well, I've worked on related issues. And so part of my role will be using that, uh, work history to inform some aspects of the production Mm. and, um, also some other, maybe more, Typical
0: dramaturgy too. I didn't realize that it was it was a project that was that was uh, uh, upcoming, rather than one that was already done. So uh, I apologize for for spraying that on you. No, that's um, totally fair. I didn't <laughs> know it was on the site,
1: and so you know, it's a good play. you went on the site and cut. So. They're fast.
0: They're fast. Yeah. Um, the there's the interesting when I was in theater school when we first heard the term dramaturg. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our theatre teacher explained that it was somebody who would do all the research about the background of the show, the history of the show, and bring that to the table, which I think is a more European uh, vision of of what dramaturgy is. And it's sort of like the person who comes in and teaches you about the world of the show. Um, whereas in North America, especially in Canada, we tend to see it more as a, as a development role. Um, is that... Did you ever hear, did you hear about the, the European version previous totally. or or was that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And sort of we, I think we ended up labeling the more Canadian version that you described there more as new play dramaturgy, and then mm-hmm. we would generally refer to the other variety as just dramaturgy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's somewhat of a common distinction here. Um, yeah. And I agree with you that those are definitely sort of the two main schools. And we did a bit of both in mm-hmm. my undergrad so Mm -hmm. i've had exposure to both and in this show my role will be both because it is a new play so i think i'll be doing certain things in both capacities
0: very good very nice um one of the questions that i've been been asking people throughout uh, the pandemic and i thought it was only going to be like maybe three months we'd be having this conversation and i would be asking this (laughs) question um Little did I know, um, but I feel like it's an important question to ask. And that's, that's about what is giving you joy every day at this time?
1: That's a, that's a big question, my friend. Um, hmm. What is giving me joy at this time? Well, I think definitely as the weather was nicer and although today was nice too but in the in the throes of summer being outdoors and being able to see my friends mm. and my family more freely in a socially distanced way albeit was definitely a major source of joy and something that I'm too often already thinking about losing as the weather changes. Um, mm-hmm. But I say, I'd say, i say definitely, yeah, the number one is my relationships and the, mm. the fortunate ability I have to maintain them through the use of technology, sure. But uh, through the nice summer months, definitely through something close to things we would have done normally. Mm. I definitely hang out in parks a lot as it is because it's cheap and parks are great and there are many parks in Toronto to enjoy but I did a lot more park hangouts than I would normally but mm. I still love them um and my partner and I happen to be big ping pong players so uh. if you live in Toronto I'm not sure if you do you might have noticed a few years ago the city put a bunch of public ping pong tables in a bunch of parkettes and parks throughout the city so we like to hit those up that brings me joy yeah and uh the I mean it's sort of awkward to use a word like consumption about Mm -hmm. art but it's the first thing that's coming to mind I guess because of the society we live in but um taking in art enjoying art participating Mm -hmm. in art making it sharing it with others something that definitely brings me joy Uh, I have a Corona Film Club, not sponsored by the beer, although we would take the sponsorship if it were ever
0: sponsored. 100%. I'm surprised <laughs> that that there's not more people who are going to them for, for sponsorships at this point.
1: Right? Yeah, we would love it, but it's tonight, actually. <laughs> when we hang up here, I'll be having dinner and then watching a movie for Corona <laughs> Film Club. And so we do it every Tuesday night and have a nice call after the movie to discuss it, which is mm. what we would typically do if we are going out to the movies. I tend to go out afterwards and talk about what we've just seen, sort of dissected a bit. I love doing stuff like that after plays, after any sort of art going. And so, yeah, we've been able to replicate that remotely a bit with um, with this film club that we've been doing almost since the very beginning hmm. and didn't know would have gone on for this long, but it is what it is. And beyond that, um, I don't know. That's probably a good answer. I can
0: probably. Yeah, there. I think it's yeah. an excellent answer. And it's, it is those little things of uh, like that help you maintain connections with people um, like a film club and things like that, being able to connect in some way that feels a little bit more normal, even though it's distant and over the internet than, than, than the, I don't know, finishing, like watching everything on Netflix.
1: Yeah. And just having that discussion afterwards really helps me. Yes. Make it feel more like a meaningful moment than just I don't know, something about Zoom calls and catching up in that way. There's an artificiality to it that I haven't entirely been able to get past, but having this subject to focus on and just doing Mm -hmm. an old school voice call to have the group conversation feels more natural to me and more typical, I guess, to to previous ways. And so that's always been comforting since we started this.
0: Yeah, that is the problem of trying to get like friends together over – Zoom or whatever is, is it doesn't feel like a regular gathering because you're looking at the Brady Bunch squares and yeah. really only one person can talk at one time. Otherwise it's a jumble of noise and nobody can hear anything. It's so unnatural and also a little exhausting. So uh, I'm not surprised that hasn't caught on, but having a, t- a specific topic and I'm sure really helps.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It definitely helps. And I hate that cut off the overlap. Cut off that have Oh, it's god awful. I really can't yeah.
0: stand it. So yeah, yeah. Um, and you've alluded to sort of dreading the winter. That not the like not. I take it you are not a winter person.
1: I am certainly not a winter person. <laughs> Maybe this year I'll try to become more of a winter person. But yeah, and I understand if anyone's listening eventually to this that is not in Toronto. I know we have a soft winter. I'm very aware that the winter Mm. in Toronto cannot be described as harsh, but I am still not a winter person.
0: You know, the thing about a Toronto winter is that um, it may not have lots of snow, but it is certainly damp and it is certainly cold Mm -hmm. and it's certainly windy. And that can be pretty unpleasant. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I'll be glad not to have to deal with is that Awful gray sludge that forms oh, so quickly goodness. after every snowfall.
0: Uh, yes, yeah. it's like it's like you have like that that snow. If you get snow in December, you have got that nice snow, and then January hits, and you're like, it's brown.
1: Yeah,
0: constantly you know, brown,
1: yeah. gray, some sort of putrid shade. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, super, so, thank you so much for for having this conversation with me.
1: Thank you for for hosting it. I appreciate it.